Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz. And you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website, sumatisparks.com. That's S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks as in Sparks are flying, dot com. And when you enter your email, you'll be added to my mailing list as well, and you'll be the first to learn about both my online events as well as my live events in the San Francisco Bay Area. So tonight, I'm really excited to have as my guest, Dr. I'm going to get the first name right, Zaleka Hepworth-Clark is a sexuality educator, an African-centered social worker, cultural and clinical sexologist, sexuality counselor, consultant, and autoethnographer. Dr. Clark, known as the Jamaican Sexosopher, is the first Jamaican-American to receive three degrees in human sexuality from accredited universities in the United States. Dr. Clark co-founded a sexuality studies program at Goddard College in Vermont, where she helped co-create the Decolonial Sexual Attitude Restructuring Assessment, or DSAR. DSAR is a unique and innovative sexuality training program that helps participants understand the impact of settler colonialism, imperialism, white supremacy, capitalism, and cis-heteropatriarchy on their relationships to gender, sexuality, and relationships. Welcome to the show, Dr. Clark. Thank you so much for having me. Peace and blessings. I'm so excited to be here. So glad to have you. So that was a mouthful, but I really wanted everyone to hear like what your work is about. It's so needed. And I first want to thank you for taking on this behemoth of a job of, you know, changing our attitudes and decolonializing the way we think about sexuality and relationships. It's just such a huge pushing a boulder uphill. And I just want to thank you for, for taking that on and, and kind of, go into a little bit about how you got into being a sexologist. It's not something that, you know, everybody gets into. And you have this background, your roots in Jamaica. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you got into this field. Sure. Well, I love um, following my heart and passion. And I was blessed to have a family that supports me in Um, kind of allowing me to have freedom to study whatever I wanted. And growing up between um, New York and Montego Bay, Jamaica, I noticed um, differences in cultures. And um, my mom's an identical twin sister, and so uh, my aunt is a lesbian, and my mom is straight, and one's right-handed and one's left-handed, and like they're mirror twins, and so I noticed different um, different morals, different attitudes, different um, uh, just different ways of being and expressing love in America versus in Jamaica, and each culture seemed really um, sure of itself, like this is the best way or something like that, but and knowing, uh, just being exposed to multiple ways of doing things and loving, I um, really started to get curious. Like in America, I was being perceived as black, but in Jamaica, they would call me white. So even race mm. was like, okay, this is interesting. Or um, just uh, the, from the music, the smells and the sounds, um, there's just different um, different histories that inform. So um, 
I I got to have the freedom to create myself and really um, think about what was important to me and um, and I was supported and and so like when I was my mom would take me to Barnes and Noble and say get whatever book you want I'm like really any book and so I found my way into like the <laughs> self help section and would get like um, I don't know our bodies our our choice like just different like sexuality books were really the ones mm-hmm. that were fascinating to me and so mm-hmm. um I was just able to kind of study that and know that um I was interested in taboo topics I was just interested in like how did we get here oh people had sex and so it was just kind of like also just thinking about um life-giving forces and my reason for being here and um, really being able to study that. And so I took took it very seriously. I went to NYU and studied sexuality, culture, and oppression at the um, Individualized School of Gallatin. And mm-hmm. um, knew that I wanted to continue studying sexuality. And so I just continued, got my master's in education of human sexuality, and my doctorate in philosophy and human sexuality from Wiser University outside Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. So you have a doctorate in philosophy, so that's why you call yourself a sexosopher. <laughs> right. Yes. I, yeah. I, um, I also love um, the philosophy of sexuality and in particular um, sexual epistemology, which is a form of psychology the studies basically the knowledge of knowledge how we know what we know how knowledge is transmitted interpreted and um, I really got interested in in sexual knowledges across different cultures as well so mm-hmm. the sexosophy is yeah just, I love the philosophy of sexuality and talking about it and brainstorming and talking to different about different perspectives and sharing different insights from different ways of knowing and thinking and experiencing love, desire, pleasure, passion, relationships, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to dig a little deeper into all of that, especially about the different cultures um, with your mother and your aunt. But before I do, I just want to say that I love how you play with language, but it's really more like you explode language. You drop a bomb into language. Um, and I, I saw that you talk about being a decolonial eroticologist, eroticologist. So um, just in general, can you talk about how you relate to that um, exploration with language and then maybe define some of those terms for us that you use? Sure. Um Whew, culture moves faster than language, and you see with the newer generations and just emerging cultures that um, language is uh, trying to catch up to phenomenon or experiences. I find it challenging to put a lot of our experiences into words, and so um, within the field of sexuality, I found some jargon that is more helpful in articulating what I mean and so um, but just to you know English is a sexist language it um, it has binaries and hierarchies ingrained into the words and the syntax structures of the sentences so it informs the way we think and the way we experience our um, our lives um, and you can see with people who speak different languages, they're able to um, know things in different ways according to the language. And so um, I just acknowledge the limitations that language has, especially around talking about certain experiences that there may not be the words for. And so um, in terms of you know, being a sexologist, there's many different kinds of sexologists, and we all have different specialties and areas of expertise. And um, I've been trained as a clinical sexologist, so, you know, I can work with, um, on issues related to sexual, um, 
I'm sorry, you cut out for a second. Issues related to. Okay. Are you hearing me now? Yes, I am. You said issues related to. Um, Sexual challenges um, or just uh, doing, like, work around sex therapy um, and relationships. Um, And my culture, I love the cultural construction of sexuality and have participated in anthropological research around sexualities and relationships. And, um, and so the eroticology and the erotic, being an eroticologist is kind of my specialty in that I take serious the study of eroticism or um, the erotic. And in particular, I um, became in love with um, Audre Lorde's work around erotic as a source of power and information, a creative energy and life force. Um, it, under, it understands our capacity for joy and satisfying, fulfilling experiences. And um, oppression distorts this power. And so the work that I do is to undo this damage and revive the replenishing, provocative life force and like inspire and remind people of their erotic intelligence which can function to, um, which can encourage excellence and give us strength uh, to pursue excellence and pleasurable experiences without shame. And so I really, um, that's kind of my area of specialty, and in particular African eroticism, which doesn't rely on um, Western sexual ontology or Western ways of being sexual. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, so that's just, well, that's really right. awesome uh, because, and, and then also the decolonizing part is just recognizing that I am acknowledging, um, uh, sexist, homophobic conditioning and, um, and kind of being, uh, taking, I'm taking a stand and that I'm committed to, unlearning negative effects of colonialism and exploring sexuality outside of patriarchy and really problematizing um, the histories of of, um, hegemonic structures or power that um, oppresses people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I get it, and I I really appreciate that. Um, There's just so much shame and um, secrecy around our eroticism. I have so many things I want to ask you about. I'm just going to pick one. Okay, so, um, you know, the more I geek out on polyamory and um, really expand my own awareness of our programming, um, the fewer people I feel like I can date because (laughs) I I Uh. see how most people and I'm you know I'm almost 60 years old so when I date people in my age group there's like such programming I can just see it you know so how do people unlearn like what are some of the negative effects of colonialism and and um it's a big question but like maybe just give us a taste of that and how how do we begin to even unravel that um yeah, so a few things. I mean, once your mind is expanded, it's hard to go back to old dimensions. Um, mm-hmm. And so just uh, operating it on different frequencies, you'll just start <laughs> getting more clear around the joy that you want or the what you want in your life and what to be a part of. And so mm-hmm. um, oof, negative effects of colonialism. Well, the first one I have to mention is the the uh, atrocities done to indigenous people and the um, kind of stolen land. Um, and so it, it is a issue, decolonization is an issue of, of land um, and getting the sovereignty back. And, and it shows up in, it shows up in so many different ways, um, like even state sanctioned uh, encouragement of what a nuclear family should be. So even, mm-hmm. um, having um, uh, privileging uh, the gender binary and the couple-centric forms of relationships and nuclear family 
that is mm-hmm. that goes that was co-constructed with federal colonial domination of land and resources. Um, so mm. even kind of how we are are thinking, our morals, our worldviews, the uh, capitalism, um, the heteropatriarchy, um, the kind of um, I don't know the idea of the possessiveness of of partnerships, the privileging mm-hmm. of romantic and sexual partnerships over all others, like platonic mm-hmm. relationships or you know other other things. So it's this kind of systematic um, uh, infrastructure with that hat that sustains dominant heteronormative assumptions and uh, uplifts. Uh, patriarchal mentalities and unwhite supremacy. And so mm-hmm. uh, that shows up in, for different people in different ways, whether that's internalized hatred or not being aware of the power that we have and um, or mm-hmm. being in tune with the joys and pleasures that our body can provide for us. Um, in the way that we relate in the way, in the way that we love and how we, um, what we're allowed to love or how we're going to be rebelling against that. Um, so I think it can show up in in terms of shame. I think, you know, a lot of times I may have a pleasurable experience and it's the kind of colonial mentalities that prevent me from experiencing the full joy that my body has the potential for because it's all the messages even expressing emotion or crying or how I'm supposed to react in a certain way. It's all kind of scripted, this um, the relationship escalator, all that pressure to, um, to live my life and get married and have kids and do, you know, participate as, as the, as the, um, the society kind of pulls that, from, or mm-hmm. there's like a pressure, a type of pressure. Ex- um, and so when you don't fit yeah. in, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like a, it's just there, kind of, and it's and mm-hmm. um, yeah, and so there's so much to unlearn. There's so much to heal from, um, even just the way we relate to nature and um, the way we relate to each other, and um, just what's even allowed legally. We think about all of, um, you know, how people who practice non-monogamy, we don't have rights for, um, we're not protected under the law for employment discrimination or housing discrimination or being able to um, marry um, our other um, partners. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's just a lot of work to be done, and it's, it's, and it's sanctioned within society's laws and um, the power structures. Right. And the cultural mores and the, um, the really ostracizing that you get if you don't participate, like if you don't, I get the question, why aren't you married? Like I have a disease of some sort. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's, there's just such the expectation is so powerful. So, wow, that was just so much. Thank you so much for that. And I wish we had, you know, six hours to get into all this. And I I want (laughs) to direct people to your teachings at the end of our interview here. But um, to take it back to non-monogamy, tell us how you support your polyamorous students and clients with um, all of this information and knowledge. Yeah. Um, Well, each person is very different. So I love self-determined learning and really tuning into each person in terms of their needs and really being a part of their journey and discovering parts of themselves that is uh, passionate and um, interested or curious about certain things. So, um, you know, for my students, I, I really like to create a space that is, um, that encourages brave conversations and authentic expression with with my welcoming, and so um, really, and, and even in the language that I use, I really don't make assumptions about um, about uh, their love life or how many partners they are, their romantic interests, and 
kind of always leave it open uh, any time that there is a learning opportunity. Um, because I talk about sexuality um, and love, I'm able to sometimes include it into the curriculum. So just always exposing my students to polyamory, whether it's something required for me, it's usually not required for me to teach about ethical non-monogamy, but I always can end up finding ways because um, whether that's uh, when I teach my students who are um, social workers or clinicians um, or my sexuality students, it's uh, I like to include um, relationship education into the sexuality curriculum and include poly vocabulary words. I mean, there's really fun, um, awesome words that um, is comes from the polyamory community and um, just increasing critical thinking around relationship hierarchies and um, little things like instead of saying classroom rules, I'll have, I'll say guidelines or agreements that is co-created with the class as opposed to me, you know, telling the classroom what the rules are going to be. I just, I think that's more um, sensitive to, um, some poly folks who are not really into the rules, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, and um, yeah, or if that's choosing a guest lecturer who are poly, polyamorous or just providing resources for, um, for their expo- exploration. And, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So um, you talked about going back and forth between New York and Jamaica and your aunt and your mother. Um, and you mentioned that you're considered black in New York and white in Jamaica. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, why was that the case? Well, race is a construct, and America has really deep historical ties to the way they've constructed race. Um, they have the one drop black, you're black kind of rule, and the passing histories, and a lot of colorism and texturism in terms of even the tightness of my curl, the politics of hair, um, and how mm. that affects how people are people read me. Um, you have this um, just the like there's no just the historical trauma in terms of slavery and um, how race was used in America is very different than how it was used in Jamaica, and so. Mm-hmm. Traveling in different parts of the world um, perceived in different ways. They'll focus on different. They'll they will project different um, different assumptions onto my body. And so, um, while in the United States there's only uh, very limited racial constructions that really don't um, <laughs> that are problematic, um, because I'm I'm mixed. You know, I'm both. So when I'm thinking. You know, if my mom's white and my dad's black, why aren't I gray? Like, that was just my, you mm. know, growing up, I'm just, you know, I don't, yeah. I didn't really get, it took me a while to understand what America's obsession with the, with uh, the black versus white thing. Um, oh, and okay. so Jamaica just has a different um, conceptualization of, of uh, skin tones and, um, and so I'm I'm read as it's interesting because when my mom's with me in Jamaica, I'd, I'm not called whitey, I'm called brown, and like so it it is kind of relative. But if I'm the lightest person in the room, they will call me out on my light skin um, hmm. privilege, and as opposed to um, different constructions. And and traveling to Brazil, it's completely different. I believe they have over 30 official races within their um, national consensus, and mm. uh, they construct race almost opposite of how American constructs it. So in, in Brazil, they called me Morena Clara, which is like like a brown, a light brown person, Um Mm-hmm. And we don't even have, that's not even, trans, their race that I was in uh, Brazil isn't even translatable to America. Wow. So, and and then be traveling in, uh, whether that's Indonesia or um, different parts of Europe, there's 
also different ways that um, my race is read and and the meanings uh, that 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 has. It also comes with me speaking English. That that comes with a certain privilege, traveling, um, and so yeah, just uh, knowing that um, you know being able to go into different worlds with different ways of understanding what a human is, um, what it what what the the connotations that people place on you um, is definitely just something that I, I notice a difference as opposed to only staying in one place. It would be easier to internalize the messages that were projected onto my body. Like me being in this kind of body, I'm subject to being hypersexualized in, in the United States because of the histories of mulattoes and, and which is uh, – yeah, so just um, I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to be exposed to multiple viewpoints, and so I kind of knew that I, I had a, I just began to see that it was more subjective than than they than than it was because there was just different ways that I could be perceived, and so I just right. had to find my own truth within that. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and you talked about being an eroticologist, and I think of erotic with like anthropologist, or I'm not exactly sure of the etymology of ologist, but um, is it appropriate to ask the question, what are some of the different forms of erotic expression that you discovered in all your travels? Hmm. I think um, I think love is articulated in different ways. I think there's many different forms of love. Um, I think erotic eroticology comes from Greek eros, which is a love like a I think it's like a sexual love, a, an erotic kind of love. Um, and and of course they had different types of love. Um, yeah, so many different types. So that is the the kind of root of the um, eros. And in terms of um, different cultures, yeah, I think just even what's acceptable in terms of public display of affection or um, what is compulsive to, like in Jamaica, it's almost like compulsive heterosexuality. And I feel like in America, it's compulsive monogamy. That's kind of like Mm-hmm. enforced in the in the um and so you know how we're able to express ourselves freely in different hostile environments shows up differently um and you know there's being a difference between what happens in the bedroom and in the home and then what happens in public and mm-hmm. um just the different um things that are encouraged whether that's through the music or the way we talk about love how we how we express our love, um, and then that shows up in terms of like what we're expected, who we're expected to love, um, the type of lovemaking that gets um, that is kind of informed by culture. So that's you know whether it's um, where a penis is supposed to go, where it's not supposed to go, the wetness, <laughs> or you know what it's what it's supposed to sound like, or you know, like all these kind of restrictions. Um, Jamaica has very uh, has the laws, colonial laws um, of sodomy and um, debunkery laws that say anal, oral, and bestiality are punishable um, uh, with prison for 14 years. So they still have these really old laws. So actually, oral sex in Jamaica is, uh, has been historically very what do I call maybe taboo or forbidden and so there's a lot Mm. of unlearning or even around um, menstruation there there being um, uh, you know uh, not supposed to engage in in sexual activity during when a woman is menstruating Um, so just having the different restrictions will inform how you're able to express uh, love and um, and so I, I just was able to witness that oh wow there's very strict um, you know that 
in Jamaica, you're not supposed to do that. In America, they don't seem to care at all about oral sex. Mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Just, um, mm-hmm. But um, so just that was also very curious for me just because um, I saw the differences. And so it kind of made, it sparked my interest in, in further studying, like, why is it? Why is it that way? And um, I think that trauma and history really do play a part of um play a part in how uh, in our morals and in our survival techniques for uh what is acceptable and and just being a, a good community member and um that means different things for different people and um different dressing different form what is considered sexiness i mean a big thing is like body types i know in jamaica um being they they call fluffy is an endearment term for um being thicker and um whereas in America there's a lot of pathology around um thicker people who um they'll associate it with health and um whereas in Jamaica if you're they say maga is a word to it's a it's a word that means skinny but it also connotates being unhealthy so even mm. what is considered beautiful you know they would like an ideal body shape they would say uh there's um like a fat pum pum for example so they like like a you know it's it's a certain aesthetic and so there's even uh, uh the what we consider sexy or um ideal or beautiful is also informed by by culture in my in my opinion mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that even goes into our genital self-esteem. If you're fitting in to um, what you think is normal, which is also informed by our culture, and uh, yeah, there there comes to be many consequences of that. Um, whether that's uh, have you know, there's uh, surgery options in the United States to get your genitals to be more uh, what you think is beautiful and um and whether or even how are you supposed to put the your pubes hair design or take it off or (laughs) there's so many politics involved in that but it's also informed by generational preferences um what's going on in erotica i think pornography has an influence in 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 sometimes when people are consumers of pornography they can um they that's a lot of where people get uh, sex education from. And so they, uh, um, yeah, will inform what they think is kind of normal uh, sexual practices and behaviors when that's something completely different. (laughs) Right. Yeah, and I was also thinking about when you were talking, well, before I continue, um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach, at sumatisparks.com. We're speaking with Dr. Zaleka Hepworth-Clark, who's a sexuality educator and African-centered clinical sexologist. And we're talking about all things uh, colonialism, imperialism, white supremacy, and how capitalism and cis-heteropatriarchy affect our relationships with gender, sexuality, and relationships. And when you were talking, if you'd like to ask Dr. Zell any questions, um, please feel free to call in. The guest number is 657-383-1132, 657-383-1132. You'll be put on hold, and we'll get to you when we have a break in our conversation. So feel free to call in. And um, we were talking about the various erotic forms of expression in different cultures as Dr. Zell has traveled to different cultures. And when you were talking about that, I was thinking about that kink kind of comes out of what's not allowed. So when you were saying that, you know, like, for example, oral sex is not really as, as kind of more frowned upon in Jamaica more so than America, um, or more, more so than the United States. Um, sorry, the Oakland Symphony is playing in the background. <laughs> yeah. I call it. I call it the Oakland Symphony. <laughs> um, 
that boy, they must have some great kink play around oral sex there <laughs> because it's not allowed, you know, like kink often comes out of the repression mm. of certain behaviors. And oftentimes I've had my own fun with kink and have been grateful for um, the restrictions because <laughs> if everything is allowed and nothing is shamed, then there's kind of like no kink. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so like, um, we, we can like own it and kind of play with it and make it fun as long as we're aware that, um, you know, we're not acting out of some kind of woundedness. We're claiming it for our own eroticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. Um, in Jamaica dancehall culture, where uh, there's really intense. Uh, dancing and so when outsiders are like observing it it could really seem like it's problematic to use western lens to kind of approach this kind of scene and Mm -hmm. you know it could look it can look violent in the way that they're dancing you know a lot of people say oh that's so misogynistic Um, but when you when you start to tune into what's really going on and the power of the punani or the the women dancing in these rhythms that um, that is very aggressive or seen as aggressive versus seen as passionate. Um, it's just interesting. Um, it was helpful for me to view this in a like a kinky lens because mm-hmm. it's it can be uh, it can look like it hurts. I mean, some of the moves they'll jump from high places and jump onto the partner or. Um, you know, very elaborate dance moves that look very, that are not vanilla at all. I would say that. And so um, just, you know, how they're negotiating and where the power, the power is not necessarily, you know, we know that you can top from the bottom or there's a lot of power in, in, in subbing, for example, it's not just like, this one-way thing it's a it's a a very powerful exchange of different energies and so um yeah I think when you're restricted in more in more terms like you know if you're not allowed to have oral sex and or anal sex or you can't have sex on your period then then the heterosex becomes uh more something whether that's um more positions that are more commonly used or um, uh, there's just more <laughs> to explore within the sh- limited range of uh, acceptable sexual behaviors. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think um, kink is just uh, just a whole thing. And we even in the United States, there's just a lot of work to be done, especially around education. So just kind of, preparing my students to be um, kink-friendly practitioners and expose uh, my students uh, to um, different types of uh, kink and how it can be used as a uh, healing uh, modality um, Mm -hmm. or therapeutic when it's used in in certain ways. Um, And, of course, I love just promoting the aftercare um, and, mm-hmm. and safety plans and knowing your limits. And um, so they actually, each community uh, has a lot to teach me. Each, uh, you know, I've learned so much from the poly community. I learned so much from the asexual community. I learned a lot from the kink community. And I think um, to have, cro- you know, learn from each other and kind of have dialogues around our cultural norms is, is, um, is important. To, to progress the, yeah, the, the field. Yeah, and the kink community especially, I think, has so much to teach the other communities about um, conversation and communication and negotiation. Um, yes. What's, what's an ordinary conversation before a kink scene is very advanced for vanilla sexual partners. <laughs> right. Yeah. But they're they're important to have, absolutely. And mm-hmm, I and I mm-hmm. just yeah, I love just the you know, knowing your your limits, your safe words, um, doing a thorough and knowing sexual what, history. Knowing what knowing what you even want. I mean that's it's taken me my lifetime to get I feel like I'm finally getting really, really good 
at knowing what I want and being able to ask for it. And that that can especially take female-identified people a long time to even know what we want and then to feel like we can ask for it without being labeled as a slut or a whore. Um, So when I do ask for what I want very specifically, then I oftentimes get it. It's like, wow, this whole world is opening up to me about actually getting what I want for a change because I'm asking for it so clearly. And it's, I'm going through like this revolution around and it's literally taken me, you know, 50 years to, to get there. It's not, it's, it's really like busting out of that culture of like speaking out about owning your sexuality and what you want and believing that you deserve to have pleasure. Absolutely. And like, um, you know, just being socialized to be a woman comes with all of this kind of baggage that we have to unlearn to even tune into our own erotic power and our and our desires to be able to self-advocate. I love this Alice Walker interview um, where she said, um, sexuality is one of the ways we become enlightened, actually, because it leads us to self-knowledge. Um, and just, I just love, just you know, some, we're 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 conditioned not to know our power and our and and to feel shame around our desires when um, when that then then you find spaces that it's not the case, and we have to learn to communicate and ask for what we need. we have to figure out even what feels good on our bodies and and also Mm -hmm. be aware of the changes that can occur because we transform, we may like different flavors, we may like, and also the context may change. So, like, if you're in another place or you're with another partner, you may be open to things that you may not have been open to in other ways. Different people may bring different aspects of yourself out. Um, Exactly. it's, It's definitely a process. It's a process. And very and very dynamic, and it's a dance that we do, and it's unique with each person we play with. Absolutely. So I'm going to move on to a, a different topic. Um, I intentionally, uh, and I want to apologize, I intentionally changed the pronoun in your bio from they to she because so many of my audience are mature people, and I also want to be able to reach out to people who aren't part of the, you know, sex, sex educator community or the, you know, more um, Bay Area kind of uh, liberal people. I want to be able to bring people in that are new to this way of thinking. And so I want to apologize for changing your pronoun. And I want to talk for a few minutes about pronouns and to help people who aren't familiar with this, because in the mainstream world, even polyamorous people often feel, and I'm mostly speaking, actually, I don't know if it's really race-related, but just more, um, you know, people that that aren't exposed to um, other people that use different pronouns. Um, To help them understand, like, I want to hear your perspective as an educator on... um, why why should we have that sensitivity and why do people use different pronouns and why is that a thing now because right. I, you know, I'm, oh. I'm 59 so you know people of my generation right. are like often rolling their eyes about it they don't understand Absolutely. it so if you could speak to yeah. like the mature people my mature audience about why <laughs> okay um well first I think it's challenging because we're limited by English and again English is is a language that requires pronouns where actually many indigenous languages uh, don't require pronoun usage at all there's no they're genderless languages so mm. it's we're already set up for <laughs> problematic uh, speech when our language demands pronouns now um, biologically speaking there are more than uh, Five sexes. You know, people think that even chromosomally there's only two, uh, male and mm-hmm. female, but actually there's intersex mm-hmm. and many variations and combinations uh, biologically found in nature. Now, that's actually a hard thing for people to say. I'm either, you know, I can say I'm credentialed here. You've got to believe me, there are more than two sexes. Now, gender, there mm-hmm. are even more genders than sexes. Mm-hmm. 
that there are mm-hmm. that that that's not necessarily correlated, and your genitals do not dictate your gender. So that's also a very mm-hmm. hard thing to unlearn. The children mm-hmm. these days are get they understand that quick. There's not all the baggage to unlearn that older generations are are we have to unlearn all all of what we all what we know for our entire life. We have to unlearn it and also make room for the the facts that are coming out out of science and these cultures that um, yes, that's true. That weren't when, and my my millennial friends, they have no problem with the different pronouns, and they really get it. And the more mature people, just it's so hard to remember. But I just want to repeat what you said: your genitals do not dictate your gender. That that's is correct. correct. Um, that's, okay. That's really, um, that's the first kind of lesson I have to teach with um, just uh, whether that's old, my older students or people that have been indoctrinated into certain binary hierarchical systems that don't allow for gender fluidity um, because we, mm-hmm. we have this kind of biological determinism that has been ingrained in us that has a lot of assumptions and we have to unlearn cis-sexism. So the issue is mm-hmm. we assume that um, if a baby is born with a particular set of genitals that, that, that we, um, we they get assigned the sex at birth and that they will identify and match the same uh, gender that they were assigned at birth by the doctor. That just said, oh, it's a boy, it's a girl. Or then, you know, they have issues if it's a intersex and, you know, a lot of historically they have to put them in surgery because they were so concerned that they didn't fit into the binary we have made possibly 1% of the population that has ambiguous genitalia or would be uh, intersex. Um, so the pronoun thing, because our language requires it, um, we know that there's more than uh, what we perceive, and we can't make an assumption based off of how we look about what the gender of that person is because they may, we don't just, we don't know their story, we don't know their history, their trauma, we don't know um, we don't know. And so some people may be presenting in a certain way for safety. Some people may just be in a tra- transitioning. We, there's so many different ways of being and so many different ways of expressing. Even thinking um, that we kind of know or there's many cultures that believe that, that, um, that a human has both masculine and feminine qualities within an individual. And so some people feel more strongly expressing femininity or masculinity, and they may be in a body that does not, that society has deemed they should be expressing themselves in a certain way. So there's more, um, the, the younger generation is aware is there's, there's language now that describes the disconnect between um, between there's more choices and there's more there's more of a culture around that will support people um, living their truth and authentic way of being which may not be what we've been conditioned to believe them to be so we are not other people are not experts of other people's bodies or, or identities so that each individual, you have the self-determination to know what your truth is and how you want to express yourself. Um, and that may be no gender, a gender. That may be multiple genders, feeling masculine on certain certain times and feminine other times and wanting the freedom to be able to express in certain ways. So naming someone, giving someone a name or a pronoun it can be very violent when someone has worked their entire life to stand in their truth and to be to to confess to you an essence of who they are in a in a a really reductive way of of putting a gendered um pronoun onto that it's it's um culturally um it's it's a matter of cultural confidence so um trans folks non binary folks gender fluid people um, may not have pronouns that you would assume them to have. And Mm -hmm. um, it kind of, when you mispronounce someone, it can be experienced as an act of violence that you do not, Mm -hmm. it's disrespectful. You don't respect who I am. You don't respect um, the essence of my being. And, and 
um, it's already situated in many oppressive contexts. So when we go to the doctor and fill out forms or or we have to put this or that on our passports and documentations, it's already a very hostile environment that forces mm-hmm. colonial understandings of gender that that limits mm-hmm. you in terms of how you can be a human when we know that there's more expansive ways of being able to express and articulate. So right now mm-hmm. what you have is people that want to be inclusive or more sensitive or respectful to different cultures, including people who are um, in tuned with the gender expansive uh, paradigm that um, it, it can be very challenging. And so they that pronouns is a very simple fix, but it's hard because it's almost like we have to unlearn, we have to untrain. It's almost like we have to learn how to speak a new language to accommodate mm-hmm. the shift in culture, which mm-hmm. is harder when we're older to really mm-hmm. unlearn that. So, mm-hmm. um, but um, the but it's it's um, it's just important to. I always ask, you know, what are your pronouns, and I also make it optional because. Some people may be outed with their pronouns. Um, you know, there's mm-hmm. not they, them is the easiest pronoun. I actually prefer zee, zer as my pronouns. Mm-hmm. Now, most people have mm-hmm. not heard of that. And so then I have to go into a historical lessons on English and uh, help just for, for people to be able to respect um, a, a, a name or uh, a mm-hmm. way of calling someone. Um, and, and this yeah. is, it's, it's, uh, it's it's political. It's personal, and mm-hmm. it's it's important. It's hard it's hard to describe, mm-hmm. but I know that it's a part of unlearning cis sexism, and and yeah. and if we can try our best to just either not use pronouns or just call them by their name, um, really yeah. try not to make assumptions. Those are going to be uh-huh. really key in terms of being able to relate to people, to be able to mm. respect people. And to mm-hmm. and to stay up to date with our language, right? And it is hard when you're older. I mean, I sincerely want to honor people's pronouns really hard, and I still slip up, and I try, and I get it right. The more I practice, <laughs> the better I do. But it's it's, it's very very yeah, hard when you're older. But I just want to say when I was in my 20s, I read a book called Woman on the Edge of Time, or maybe I was in my 30s, um, Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy, and it was a feminist utopian novel, and they used the pronoun per, short for person, and I always thought that was so perfect, and it never really caught on. (laughs) I just think that works so well. Well, that is actually a pronoun. It's still, um, it's actually a pretty popular gender neutral uh, pronoun, too. So yeah, that's oh, another okay. example of a non, a non, and it's just yeah. I think you got it. You know, we need to practice. We need to be humble. We need to you know apologize when we when we can when we catch ourselves, and just um, mm-hmm. be patient and just kind of keep trying. Mhm. Okay. Cool. All right. So um, we have a little bit more time, maybe five more minutes, and I'm really curious about um, you use the term oceanality. What is, and how does oceanality yeah. intersect with open relating? So can you give us the Cliff Notes version of that? <laughs> oh, geez. So oceanality is African eroticism that firms the normality of pleasure. It's a dynamic creative energy connector between intervening phases of sexuality and fertility paradigm. It um, mm. outlines a sequential energy flow from desire, arousal, copulation, pleasure, fulfillment, conception, birth, and growth. But that flow doesn't need to result in sex and birth, but it does require the pleasure principle, um, which mm. is a creative energy associated with Oshun's honey. So um, this is a term, oceanality, that was created by Nzegwu, a, uh, a Nigerian philosopher and feminist and artist. And it talks about... Um, a, a, a concealed power that revitalizes and renews life. It's uh, even the sexual activities are interpreted as spiritually and psychologically activating this force of change, transformation, and growth. And the feelings of sexual fulfillment that it produces can ensure social harmony and stability. 
So, you know, oceanality is a dynamic uh, force that's rich and complex, and its dualities can be found in women's sexual identities and um, can be offered to their partners with the birth of children in order to build communities and harmony through intimacy Mm -hmm. and bonding. Um, It's based off of uh, Oshun, which is a... Uh, Orisha. Orishas are basically personality archetypes or a divinity or a force of nature or an aspect of God or an energy matrix to summarize quickly into English. Um, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, and it's um, there's many different Orishas and this is found in um, af- men, uh, different Afro-spiritual traditions and um, and so it's interesting because Oshun is associated with fresh water with um, beauty and sensuality and so much I can't even give justice to in, in, in a mm-hmm. moment. But uh, the stories, uh, Oshun had many lovers, many different husbands, mm-hmm. and she also mm-hmm. was married, for example, to o, uh, Shango, who had multiple wives before they even became lovers. And so there's uh, it's in a paradigm where it's kind of like a, a love is is in abundance, and it's um, and not it's non-monogamy is definitely the the main relationship kind of flow in that in the stories, mm. and so um, it's just there's uh, there's stories between metamors and stories between you know there's just lots of different love stories, and it's usually in the context of multi- multiple multiple um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, one Beautiful. of my favorite concepts, uh, my favorite concept within oceanality is the devouring vagina, and it just kind of assigns agency to um, the vagina, and it engulfs the penis. It surrounds, it envelopes, it swallows. It makes the penis disappear, and pulling out is seen as an act of resistance, um, mm. and it kind of alludes to. Um, yeah, just the re-swallowing and the drawing maybe appears resistance, but its its seed is still pulled by the demanding vagina. And so I just mm. I love the the non um it's a different way of of understanding sex and uh, has yes. a different narrative that um that assigns um agency to uh the person who possesses the vagina. Um, yeah, I want to um, interrupt you because I want to give you time to tell people how they can reach you. We just have a couple of minutes left, but when you're talking about that, it, I wish I had more time to talk about the experience that I had last summer that when you were describing it, it was exactly the experience I had. It was in community. It was a sex positive, mostly polyamorous community. And I had that experience of kind of like energetically being, uh, receiving like, um, being impregnated by this giant phallus of the community and that everybody were everybody in the community were the, the co-fathers. So we'll talk about that another time, uh, but I, I'm going to do some yeah. global research on oceanality. Um, but I want to give you the last couple of minutes here to tell people how they can reach you and uh, anything else that you want to offer to our listeners. Sure. Um well, I can be found. Uh, more information about me and my work can be found at zaleka.com. That's Z as in zoosexual, E as in ecosexual, L as in lactation, A as in aftercare, I as in intersecti, K as in karma sutra, A as in asexual. And, um, and there you'll find a link to my webinar on oceanality and non phallocentric sex, which is through the Institute of Sexuality and Enlightenment. Um, and I am going to be organizing a decolonial sextopia unconference where we'll have an uh, opportunity to imagine what sexual liberation can look like and get clarity around what needs to be unlearned or transformed or healed for a better future and just thinking strategically about ways to decrease the distance towards liberation. Um, I'm still accepting clients at my um uh, my business called the Pluriversity, and whether that's therapeutic or educational needs, um, and I'm I'm open and available. And um, I guess the last thing I'd like to say is 
uh, one of uh, a message from Kim, Dr. Kim Tallbear from the Critical Polyamorous, who um, says, "May your networks of love and relationships be many and not caged with settler colonial norms of individualism and hierarchies of life, ownership of land, water, bodies, and desires." So, with that, I just um, like to conclude, may we, may we love in, a, in the abundant paradigm and in ways that liberate us. So um, thank you. Beautiful. Thank you so much. This is a brilliant conversation. I wish you all the best in your career and your teachings. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.